Welcome to this BJSM podcast. My name is Johan Wintz and I'm here at the 2015 Old Mutual Health Convention in Cape Town, South Africa. And I'm here with our guest, Dr. Stephen Finney. Dr. Finney is a physician scientist who's really pioneered the field of low carbohydrate research over the last 30 years, looking at the benefits of this diet in both health and performance. Along the way, he's co-authored over 100 papers and three books on the subject, and we're thrilled to hear what he has to say to us today. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Finney. Thanks, Johan. Glad to be here. So as you know, a lot of the talks here have focused on low-carbohydrate diets in the context of health and weight loss, but your talk kind of geared towards athletic performance and carbohydrate intake. Along the way, you dispelled a lot of misconceptions about high-carbohydrate intakes necessary for athletic performance and addressed some of the research that looked at where carbohydrate loading might come from or the need for carbohydrates to fuel performance. Could you take us through some of the literature that you addressed and take us through the idea behind carbohydrate loading or high carbohydrate intake for, for, for performance, as well as your data in low carbohydrate diet and athletic performance as well. Sure, now, let me kind of start with where I began in this area. Um, was a um, student and, and a physician in training, I did a fair amount of bicycle riding and I was taught nothing about nutrition in medical school, but I discovered as a cyclist that if I didn't eat some carbs every hour of riding, then within a couple hours of riding, I would hit the wall, I'd run out of fuel, some bike, bicyclists call it bonking, and I discovered empirically, before I'd read any of the literature on carb loading, this was back, I was doing this back in the 1960s, and that's when the research was being done in Scandinavia, but I came to the clear observation that I needed carbs to do endurance performance. Uh, about the same, in the same time period, early 1970s, uh, Dr. Atkins uh, wrote a book uh, promoting a low-carb diet for weight loss, and a lot of people adopted that diet. And most people used it for a short period of time just to shed some, you know, 10 pounds, 20 pounds, a few, you know, 10 kilos. Um, but some people stayed on it longer, and they reported that, paradoxically, they didn't seem to be limited in their performance because of carb restriction. Um, that was, um, that didn't fit my experience, but there was very little research on low-carb diets um, and physical performance beyond a week or two, and these are people who had been on the diet for a month or more. So we did two projects in the late 1970s, early 1980s, um, one in untrained people and one in trained cyclists, and came to the um, quite astounding conclusion that if you went low carb for a week or two, your performance sagged. But if you took people out to four or six weeks of low carb diet, performance came back. Um, and not only did performance come back, but it did so at a much, much lower um, rate of utilization of carbohydrate and a much higher rate of utilization of fat. Um, and we published that data and it sat there being ignored for 30, about 30 years. And then just recently, it's been picked up by some ultra-marathon athletes, people who are almost guaranteed to hit the wall um, because they're running distance of 50 to 100 miles. Um, uh, and again, this is the empiric experience that led us to this, not science, so not research projects, but people said, you know, if I cut out the carbs and adapt to the low-carb diet like you said we could do decades ago, I can now run 100 miles or 100 kilometers on a very low carb intake, and I go run faster than I did before, 
So that has led to some research that I've done with Dr. Jeff Volick at Ohio State University, and that's what we report, reported here. So in reference to that work that you've done with Dr. Volek, I know yourself, as well as Dr. Volek's work, and even Professor Noak's work in the lab here in Cape Town, you've noted that in these athletes, once they're adapted to this diet, it seems that they have a much higher rate of fat oxidation during exercise compared to those who aren't on this diet, much higher than they've seen in the published literature and other contexts. What would some benefits be for athletes then with that high rate of fat oxidation that you wouldn't have with other rates or with other diets? Sure. So if you look at the published literature up until the present, the highest rate of fat oxidation for a well, well-trained athlete it tends to be about one gram of fat per minute. That, because there's nine calories in a gram of fat, that means 540 calories per hour, which is nine times 60. Uh, 540 calories per hour of an athlete's fuel can come from fat, and that's said to be the absolute ceiling. Uh, now, if an athlete is, is exercising using two-thirds of their calories as, as uh, fat, that limits them to a very modest speed of running or modest speed of cycling. And that's why it's always been thought that fat couldn't be a dominant fuel in uh, competitive sport. But what we found long ago translated to more like uh, one and a half grams of fat per minute, not one maximum. Uh, but that was just a few subjects and that we used techniques 30 years ago that people say, oh, well, yeah, maybe they weren't accurate back then. So Jeff Volick has recently competed a, completed a study of ultra runners, half of whom were high carb runners, and the other had adopted the low carb strategy for at least six months, which most athletes find is the minimum time to really hone their skills with the diet and get fully adapted. You don't do this overnight, you don't do it in a week, it takes months to, for the body to really make, and, and one's dietary practices to really make the full transition. And when Jeff looked at these ultra runners who are on the high carb diet, again he found maximum fat oxidation rates of under one gram per minute, 60 grams per hour. And on the high carb runners we found maximum fat oxidation, or the average fat oxidation rates to be one and a half grams per minute. Uh, so it really reinforced what we found before. What that means is not 540 calories per hour burned from fat, but something closer to 800 calories of fat burned per hour. Um, and that says that some athletes, endurance athletes doing at the at race pace for a uh, ultra marathon running distance, um, that they can get 70 to 80% of their calories from fat at race pace. Um, what that means is only a small percentage of the fat has to come from carbohydrate, and some of that can come from muscle glycogen. Again, when you go on a low-carb diet, your glycogen doesn't, it's reduced in the muscle, but it's not eradicated. Uh, some of it can come from gluconeogenesis um, at a very modest pace. And then, again, most ultra-runners consume some carbs during the event, and people who are now using this strategy, they don't run on zero in-race calories, but they run on maybe one quarter of the in-race calories that they would have when they followed a high-carb diet. So the potential application of this is um, ultra-endurance events where um, some caloric ingestion is, is utilized, but the dominance of the fuel supply comes from endogenous fat stores. Okay, there's definitely some solid 
physiological evidence in the use of a low-carbohydrate diet there in ultra-endurance events, like you say. I wanted to switch gears to the other end of what you might call the performance spectrum to more strength and power sports. Uh, can you take us through whether there's any literature evaluating these diets or athletes that are adapted to these types of diets in those types of sports and whether uh, there might be some evidence for their efficacy in those contexts? Uh, there's very limited published evidence on that. There was one study from um, uh, Italy a couple years ago in gymnasts who um, uh, used a low-carb diet and they found no impairment of, of performance once they were adapted to a low-carb diet. Now, why would a gymnast want to do that? Well, weight and body shape is very important in gymnastics. And one of the things that, that uh, certain classes of competition require is making weight or having optimum body appearance, muscle definition, uh, whatever. And uh, so this, could, this strategy can be used for uh, athletes who, who struggle with their weight and for whom uh, reducing percent body fat, um, whether to make weight under a certain level or to achieve a certain appearance is important. So in your, in your previous work, you've also mentioned collaboration you've done with Dr. Volek, and I know uh, Dr. Volek's actually a competitive powerlifter and has a history of competing in that event, which is obviously not a long endurance event. It's a very short duration of activity, but I know he follows a low-carbohydrate diet. Can you take us through why he might be on that diet and then uh, take us from there? Sure. Um, this is back before we worked together, but uh, uh, he was a state champion powerlifter um, in his early 30s. And the reason why he adopted a low-carb diet was he struggled to make weight, to, to stay within his optimum weight category in powerlifting. Um, and so he was able to re reduce percent body fat with diet that it, and achieve a composition that he wasn't able to achieve with very intense training. And that happens oftentimes in, in athletes who get past their, their youthful years. Um, and he didn't find that he was limited by reduced muscle glycogen. Remember, glycogen doesn't go to zero on a low-carb diet. It's usually cut in half. Well, you know, I say you only have half as much glycogen. That's going to limit you. No, because his typical event lasted half a second. It's really the ATP and the creatine phosphate that you have in your muscles. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with muscle glycogen, what you do. And then the second factor that he found is that where it benefited him was that he could train more intensely because a well-formulated ketogenic diet turns out to be a potent anti-inflammatory and recovery after intense exercise is markedly foreshortened. And that's been in, not only in empiric conservation, but we've seen that in some of our research with, with uh, athletes um, using the low-carb diet strategy. And then, you know, is he the only one? Well, it, it, people who come out in the public domain um, there was a uh, tennis player named, is a tennis player named Marty Fish, who in his 20s did reasonably well in tennis, but never really reached the, the top of the circuit. Um, and in, by his early 30s, uh, he was, I think, six feet four and probably weighed uh, somewhat over 200 pounds, and his knees were causing him a lot of trouble. And he adopted a low-carbohydrate diet, lost 30 pounds, gained back his agility, increased his volume of training, and um, was America's top-ranked tennis player for two or three years, and that he, was, he did in his early 30s. Another example is Bodie Miller, the downhill skier, who's had a long career, uh, but he wanted to ski and you know, compete in the Sochi Winter Olympics, uh, but he just didn't have the agility he had before. He adopted a low-carb diet, shed 30 pounds, 
and uh, won the bronze medal. And uh, technically, that made him the oldest uh, uh, downhill skiing medalist in, uh, in the history of the Olympics. Uh, and he did it with the benefit of a low-carb diet. Wow, those are definitely some impressive stories. And I know you've spent the last 30 years researching this field, and it still seems to be a, a budding area of interest. At this stage, where do you think the research will go in the next five or 10 years? What are some areas that you think should be explored or might be really interesting in terms of this low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet in athletes? Um, well, I think there's some basic mechanisms that just beg to be explored. Uh, why do patients, or why, why do athletes find that they have uh, a markedly foreshortened recovery after intense either competition or training? Uh, and there's been some recent research indicating that the uh, 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 ketone body that we, uh, that's called beta-hydroxybutyrate that humans make when they restrict carbs below a certain level, and that leads to what we call nutritional ketosis, that this ketone body, beta-hydroxybutyrate, has unique properties, not just as an alternate fuel as replacing blood glucose, but it also is a signaling compound that actually signals our genes in unique ways that defends the body against oxidative stress and inflammation. Uh, this just came out in the last couple of years. The first research is, is exciting, but it really doesn't give us the details. Uh, but uh, having, a, a, having a nutritional strategy that reduces oxidative stress and inflammation and speeds recovery and, and avoids delayed, delayed onset muscle soreness, I mean, what isn't there to like in, in among those possibilities? But we really need to research them carefully to find out. Okay, there's definitely, definitely some areas that people might want to look at when you look at future research in the coming years, uh, and some promising preliminary data at least. Mm -hmm. I wanted to quickly play devil's advocate, or at least pose the questions to you. What are some of the most common criticisms you might receive from detractors from this way of eating uh, in what's predominantly been a carbohydrate-dominated sport nutrition field? What are the most common criticisms, and how would you address those? Uh, the most common criticism, I think, is, well... That's neat technically, but nobody can stay on a diet like that. It's just not practical. Yeah. Um, and the criticisms are not being able to stay on it. Well, you know, everybody's got to eat carbs, right? The brain needs carbs for fuel. The answer is no. The brain can function fine on, on, on beta-hydroxybutyrate, a.k.a. ketones. Um, the other uh, uh, concerns about people not being able to stay on it is high protein. It's going to hurt your kidneys. Well, actually, the optimum well-formulated, low-carbohydrate diet is moderate in protein, it's not high protein. And the majority of one's calories come from fat in the diet. Uh, and so typically the type of diet that athletes are now using for this purpose is only 15 or 20 percent protein and over 70 percent, maybe as high as 75 percent of calories coming from fat. That sounds frightening. And then we get the criticism, well, Sure, the athlete might be able to have superior performance on that, but all that fat's going to kill them. Um, so we've actually done the research, Jeff Bullock and myself, looking at the fate of dietary saturated fats, because the thing people always worry about is, well, it's all that saturated fat that, that you're eating. And so we've actually purposely fed people, for durations of up to three months, a high saturated fat diet as part of a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet. And then we measure how much saturated fat is there is there in the blood. And we've discovered a fascinating paradox, and that is somebody can eat three times as much saturated fat 
when they're keto adapted, that is they've been on a low carb diet for a month or two or longer. And although they're eating three times as much saturated fat, the blood levels of saturated fat go down. How can that be? Because as we mentioned before, their bodies have adapted to burn fat as its primary fuel. And the saturated fats seem to go first in line and they get burned before they can accumulate. If they don't accumulate, they can do no harm. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. I wanted to kind of, as we wrap up, ask, what are some practical steps athletes could take if they wanted to head in this direction of having a low-carbohydrate diet? What would, you, what would you say to athletes in that position? Uh, well, the first is that um, this is not an easy change to make. Um, uh, if a person makes a, this kind of change and announces it to his or her trainer, mother-in-law, spouse, friends, they're all going to say, oh, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. You'll come up against a lot of pushback. Um, uh, and you have to be prepared for that. Uh, the second is that it's not easy because it's not just taking out the carbs. It's getting the amount of protein right. It's um, getting in enough fat and the right kinds of fats. Um, and there's a lot of detail there. Um, the kind of fats that we've been told are healthy in the past turn out to be not good for this kind of diet. You don't want to eat a lot of high polyunsaturate seed oil fats. Um, getting your mineral intake right, if we take away uh, a lot of the, the, the foods that one can, would consume like fresh milk, which contains too much sugar, one has to then switch to cheese for calcium. Uh, you, you can eat some green cruciferous vegetables that have calcium, it takes a lot of those to get enough getting calcium right, getting magnesium right, and this may sound funny, but getting salt right is important to understand because when you're adapted to a ketogenic diet, your kidneys clear salt much faster. And all athletes know if they become salt depleted, their performance is going to tank. So getting enough salt, getting enough of the right kind of minerals is quite complex. And to answer that, Jeff and I have written a book uh, specifically for athletes on this topic uh, it's not a long book, but there's a more information in there that I'm going to give you in the next three minutes. And so the, the title of the book is The Art and Science of Low Carbohydrate Performance. It's self-published. You can't find it in bookstores, but it's available on Amazon. That's terrific. Thank you very much for those practical steps the athletes looking in this direction could take, as well as further reading for them if they really want to investigate further. I wanted to, on behalf of our listeners and BGSM, thank you for your time here, uh, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Cape Town. Thanks, Johan. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Stephen Finney in the area of low-carbohydrate diets and athletic performance on this BJSM podcast from the 2015 Old Mutual Health Convention here in Cape Town, South Africa. You can listen to the rest of this series of podcasts on the BJSM website as well as on your handy BJSM app for your Apple and Android device. Thank you for listening and have an active day.